Hello everyone, this is Christian Brassard, your host, uh, coming out with the 36th episode of the podcast. So last time, it was a, <clears throat> a few months ago, episode number 35, when we talked about or Russian Orthodox Christianity and work ethic and historiography. Uh, that was a fun one to do, and also we have one here today about President Johnson and the entry of the United States into the Vietnam War. So uh, let's uh, let's jump right into it. There may be some divided opinions about American President Lyndon Johnson and his uh, culpability uh, for the U.S. entry into the Vietnam War. You know, some may say that uh, events forced Johnson's hand. Others believe he may may have deliberately chosen to get involved or that others persuaded him. In any case, November 1964 to July 1965 was a critical time for Johnson's presidency and the war. It was then that the Americans escalated their role in Vietnam. Johnson brought his country to war for almost a decade. And so was his decision justified? I'm going to come out right out and say that, no. (laughs) So let's get a little bit into that. American involvement in Vietnam had its roots in the fear of communism. After World War II, the Americans were determined to stop worldwide communist growth, and the Cold War began. This was especially after China became a communist country in 1949. America feared that if Vietnam in Southeast Asia would become communist, other countries in Southeast Asia would also fall. This was the infamous domino theory. The idea of that is if one country fell to communism, the ideology would spread to the next country and then the next. So a decade before Johnson's presidency, the Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, had vowed to keep South Vietnam non-communist. This commitment came in September 1954 with the signing of the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, or the CETO Pact. By entering this pact, which also provided for things such as intelligence sharing between the members, America guaranteed its support for South Vietnam. The Eisenhower administration joined CETO in frustration over the Geneva Conference, which had convened earlier that year. And the Geneva Conference had taken place after the French were ousted from their Vietnamese colony, and the conference divided the country into a communist north and a non-communist south. So very similar to what happened in Korea after World War II, which the top half of Korea was became the communist North Korea, and then the south became the non-communist South Korea. So this happened in the same way, in a very similar way, in uh, Vietnam. The Geneva Conference divided Vietnam into north and south, communist northern Vietnam, and a non-communist South Vietnam. The Geneva Conference also forbade the deployment of foreign armies and bases in either country. So that was the 1950s. So Eisenhower joining uh, the Geneva Conference first happened, and then Dwight Eisenhower commits the United States to the CETO Pact and guaranteeing South Vietnam's non-communist status. Jumping into the next decade, in November 1963, the South Vietnamese government of Ngoc Dinh Diem was overthrown and the country's survival was in grave doubt. The country was divided, civil administration was ineffective and chaotic, and the demoralized South Vietnamese military was losing against North Vietnamese communists. It was clear that South Vietnam would not survive on its own. On March 16, 1964, a report was delivered by Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara and General Maxwell Taylor, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It urged the Americans to greatly increase their aid to South Vietnam. It recommended that South Vietnam be given military equipment to increase its number of soldiers. It also talked about the the possibility of putting military pressure on North Vietnam. The Joint Chiefs wanted President Johnson to immediately get involved, but Johnson was reluctant about harming the unstable South Vietnam through direct American intervention. He was also concerned about retaliation from the Chinese or the Soviet Union, or both. After all, during the Korean War, when it looked like uh, the UN forces were going to push North Korea back all the way to the Chinese border, Chinese troops moved into Korea and pushed them back down to pretty uh, essentially the same border as it was before the Korean War. So this would have been a, a, a valid concern on Johnson's part. So 
I think now it's, I want to take 20 minutes to talk about a memorandum sent from the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, to the president, March 16th, 1964. So that memorandum talks about the overall situation in Vietnam, how America is supporting South Vietnam, what America's goals are there, some of the dangers that are, that are there, and also provokes, uh, provides some recommendations as to what to do and what not to do. Um, so this memorandum was given before the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which changed everything and changed the whole calculus for the Americans. So, uh, I want to go into that memorandum. So we'll go into it for about 20 minutes and then we will talk about the Gulf of Tonkin incident and then Johnson's decision to escalate American involvement. U.S. objectives in South Vietnam were explicitly stated, quote, I'm quoting from the document here. Quote, we seek an independent, non-communist South Vietnam. We do not require that it serve as a Western base or as a member of a Western alliance. South Vietnam must be free, however, to accept outside assistance as required to maintain its security. This assistance should be able to take the form not only of economic and social measures, but also police and military help to help root out and control insurgent elements. End quote. And, of course, these insurgent elements would be the Viet Cong, supported from North Vietnam. And so it goes right into the rationale of this, of this document. So it says that if South Vietnam cannot be stabilized, if South Vietnam cannot be uh, saved from communism, it literally says almost all of Southeast Asia will probably fall under communist dominance. That's a direct quote from it all of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. So it says the same thing, and then, then it talks about how the Philippines would be threatened, Australia and New Zealand, so again, and Taiwan, Korea, and Japan uh, could be greatly threatened by, by communism. So again, talking about the domino theory, it explicitly talks about that in, in the document. What the document also implies is that American credibility could be on the line. So this had a ramification or an implication outside of Southeast Asia, apparently, according to the document, but saying that it, it, it was a, almost a test of, of the American ability to help a country resist communism. However, it's important to note that, as we've talked about earlier in this episode, that this memorandum is talking about limited American involvement in Vietnam so far. We're not, this, the Gulf and Tonkin incident hasn't happened yet, and the troop surge, if you will, hasn't happened yet. So at this time, the Americans are recommending, uh, the Americans are supporting South Vietnam, but in limited operations, putting the responsibility of South Vietnam's uh, stabilization on the South Vietnamese. American support was given to South Vietnam in recruitment, policing, agricultural, intelligence, and training efforts. The memorandum from Robert McNamara to President Johnson also recommended to uh, that the United States provide South Vietnam with better warplanes and armored personnel carriers. Just as North Vietnam was supporting the Viet Cong insurgency with Vietnamese and Chinese-made weapons, it was recommended that the United States would also provide better equipment to South Vietnam. So another quote is notable here. Quote, substantial reductions in the numbers of U.S. military training personnel should be possible before the end of 1965. However, the U.S. should continue to reiterate that it will provide all the assistance and advice required to do the job, regardless of how long it takes. So this was, at this point, it was a long-term uh, consultancy, training, and support mission, not a combat mission. So the memorandum also talks about some of the, the dire situation that South Vietnam was in. So the, it mentions the coup of November 1963 and also talking about how that disrupted the uh, command structure of, of the military and also how um, the peasantry of the country had been, you know, their, uh, quote, faith had been shaken. And um, so this was causing a problem that caused confusion and North Vietnamese support was increasing for the Viet Cong. 
And uh, as I just mentioned, also weapons were coming as well from North Vietnam to the Viet Cong. And so the South Vietnamese were losing control of, of, the, country, of, of the country gradually in, in some areas. And also, so the government itself was kind of, it was unstable. It was, un, it was uncertain. The coup had happened in November 1963. The memorandum came out in March 1964. So... This so there was some uncertainty about the Han government, the the new government that replaced uh, Ngo Jinjian. The Americans did have some encouragement in that the new Khan government was uh, listening to American advice, and it was the the new government was seen as a useful ally despite the dangers. And so the memorandum talks. This is perhaps the most important part of it. This is taught in section four. Alternate present courses of action. So here we are. We're looking at South Vietnam. It's dealing with a Viet Cong insurgency, which is being supported by North Vietnam. What is America supposed to do about it? We need to make sure that South Vietnam stays non-communist. But what do we do? So one option is negotiate on the basis of, quote unquote, neutralization is what it says. So in this way, this, this action is talking about... It actually mentions uh, Charles de Gaulle of, of France and talking about how he seemed to want South Vietnam to not be uh, a Western base or part of an alliance structure. That's a direct quote out of the out of the document. Western base or part of an alliance structure. And the Americans would be would be okay with this. But de Gaulle was also apparently pushing for the withdrawal of all quote withdrawal of all external military assistance and specifically total US withdrawal. So the Americans would not would not accept this. They might accept uh, the idea of South Vietnam not becoming part of a uh, of a Pacific alliance or something like that, but they would not accept US withdrawal from South Vietnam. And so the memorandum explains why. Quote only the U.S. presence after 1954 held the South together under far more favorable circumstances and enabled Diem, the South Vietnamese president at the time, to refuse to go through with the 1954 provision calling for a nationwide free elections in 1956. So America was, the Amer McNamara was saying here in this memorandum that basically the Americans are keeping South Vietnam alive. This is there's no way that we can withdraw, uh, with withdraw from South Vietnam, uh, because if we do that, South Vietnam will become communist guaranteed. And so there was they they suggested modifying the Geneva Accords that forbade foreign military presence in in Viet South Vietnam, but so but the American alternative said four things. One was the there were no there were going to be no restrictions on external military assistance. Second point was there was going to be a guarantee of South Vietnam's borders, so kind of a security guarantee for South Vietnam. And also the third point would have been a guaranteeing of Cambodia's borders as well. And also, here's number four, quote, removal of the 1954 provision for free elections in all of Vietnam. But the Americans suggested they're fine with the Geneva Accords, but we, oh, but we want external military assistance to be available. We want a security guarantee for South Vietnam, and we want to have no free elections in all of Vietnam. So, or at least remove that provision for it. So that was the negotiation based on a neutrality. But here is a sort of a neutrality of South Vietnam with American support. But then the second action, the second possible action, the South Vietnamese and U.S. military would actually attack North Vietnam. And this is the second option, which ultimately happened, as we've talked about. So there were three categories of military actions that was recommended under this uh, option B. South Vietnam would conduct operations against the Viet Cong insurgency in Laos and Cambodia with some indirect U.S. support, but also uh, American air recon would be done in North Vietnam. Uh, another part would be South Vietnamese air strikes against North Vietnam, like retaliatory strikes. And so, or 
South Vietnam and the United States could overtly attack North Vietnamese targets from uh, U.S. bombers based in Japan. This was called, quote, graduated overt military pressure by GVN, South Vietnam, and U.S. forces. So this one, this again, this at the point, at the moment, as of March 1964, the memorandum is recommending sort of a restraint. Uh, so it acknowledges the threat of escalation in response. And also, it, it talked about it would be hard to justify such attacks in the first place. Quote, Before this program could be implemented, it would be necessary to provide some additional air defense for South Vietnam and to ready U.S. forces in the Pacific for possible escalation. And so, and also it mentions that unless the South Vietnamese government could be secured and stabilized, um, and if they if the Americans would escalate against North Vietnam uh, too early before South Vietnam was ready for any North Vietnamese retaliation, this could make things a lot worse. So this points to President Johnson's reluctance to go against North Vietnam without stabilizing South Vietnam first. So again, that's the talk of the memorandum. Support South Vietnam, and but don't attack North Vietnam militarily, but the option was being discussed. So in a later part of the document, it talks about possible later actions. It talked about if the South Vietnamese government was stabilized, it was recommended to, quote, develop a capacity to do border actions against North Vietnam and also uh, start the sustained U.S. bombing of North Vietnamese targets within 30 days, right? So again, it's saying don't do this yet, but this is possibly something we should do. So I should mention that in a later section of the memorandum, in section six, there was one, uh, it talks about actions that were considered but rejected. And one of them was actually stationing a U.S. combat unit around Saigon to keep Saigon safe. And another one, too, was the U.S. taking over command. So again, at this point, stabilizing South Vietnam would be the responsibility of the South Vietnamese Cong government and the South Vietnamese military not the American. An American escalation could also, quote, disturb key allies and other nations. So the, the memorandum does not go into the possible Soviet reactions, for example. But it, it's also important to keep in mind, too, that a lot of American allies did not participate in the fighting in Vietnam. Canada did not, for example. Canada was willing to go to uh, war in, of course, World War I, World War II, and Korea, but not in Vietnam. So, and in fact, many draft dodgers from the Americans went to Canada. So that was something that the this memorandum was considering. If we if the Americans escalate, it could offend or alarm American American allies. So now, what to make of this memorandum? We're talking about March 1964, a few months before the Gulf of Tonkin incident and the es subsequent escalation after that. So the thing is that we are dealing with a few misconceptions here. Remember, the the document again talking about the goals. the The document talked about the goal, the American goals in Vietnam. The American goal in Vietnam was to keep South Vietnam non-communist. That was the ultimate goal of this whole thing. And so otherwise, if South Vietnam fell to communism, then Southeast Asia would become communist. Austra uh, it even mentions Australia getting threatened, the Philippines, Japan. And the thing is that, I'll go into this a little bit later, but the, this document was based on the fear of the domino theory. And which the domino theory ended up being a worthless and I would argue even somewhat dangerous theory of on part of American foreign policy in the first place. So that is discredits the memorandum quite a bit, in my opinion. And the whole objective of stabilizing South Vietnam was at with minimal risk from the Americans. That was something that eventually this memorandum did not, It those recommendations were not, eventually not followed. 
it talked about, yes, we have the option to escalate, which was probably part of the problem, um, because the option was there. Um, but at the same time, you know, if the memorandum didn't recommend, didn't mention escalate, American escalation, would escalation still have been on the table? Yeah, I think so. But it did talk about it. It did mention it. And, and the thing is that South Vietnam eventually did not stabilize, as, as we talked about before, where there were many problems in South Vietnam that allowed the Viet Cong to, to become, to be powerful there. And, for uh, people to mistrust the South Vietnamese government. One interesting thing here, too, in the conclusion of the document, it says that if the South Vietnamese government under Khan could uh, stay in power, and according to McNamara at the time, he said, quote, it is my judgment that the situation in South Vietnam can be significantly improved in the next four to six months. So until later in 1964. And so he believed, he was optimistic, that if the Americans supported South Vietnam, the situation would would stabilize. But as the war eventually turned out, and American escalation did in fact happen after the Gulf of Tonkin incident and mass bombing attacks on, uh, on North Vietnam eventually did happen, you know, in the meantime, South Vietnamese government did not stabilize. It did not stabilize in the long term. However, it is important to note that the memorandum does say that South Vietnam, Vietnam's struggle against the Viet Cong and their North Vietnamese supporters would be a long-term, quote, campaign based on a war-weary nation, South Vietnam, and operating against Viet Cong cadres who re retain a great measure of motivation and assurance. So, on balance, the memorandum is, I would say it's fairly balanced, actually. It talks about... Um, Supporting South Vietnam through intelligence and all, you know, short of uh, major military means. But, and, uh, and it, again, yes, it does talk about military escalation being on the table as an option, but it doesn't recommend doing it. So I think that if the memorandum was kept, if it was kept to that, if America stayed out of Vietnam uh, from a large scale uh, operation, this could be this might have been okay. This might have been wise from an American standpoint, but the escalation that happened, you know, in the end, that uh, the memorandum wasn't followed in the end. The situation changed with the Gulf of Tonkin uh, incident, and, you know, it was interpreted as such that uh, military action, more military action was needed. The memorandum was balanced, but in the end it didn't, it wasn't actually followed in the long term. Things changed with the Gulf of Tonkin incident in August 1964. This happened during the so-called DeSoto missions, which were part of a joint U.S.-South Vietnamese action to gather signal intelligence, or SIGINT, on North Vietnam. And also, South Vietnamese commandos and boats even launched raids against North Vietnamese positions, though the U.S. Navy did not take part in these raids. So, the American reconnaissance missions began in earnest a month earlier, in July 1964, with the destroyer USS Maddox assigned to perform the patrol. The Maddox was to stay at least eight miles away from the North Vietnamese coast. By August 2nd, the Maddox was at the northern end of its patrol route, ten miles from the Red River Delta. The Maddox crew saw three North Vietnamese patrol boats in the area, but the crew thought they were in international waters. Then the crew intercepted a message instructing the patrol boats to attack. The Maddox fired the first shots, and the North Vietnamese fired torpedoes in response. No American lives were lost, but thanks to American air support, one communist boat was destroyed and the other two were crippled. The fight was over in less than 20 minutes, but it caused a flurry of diplomatic activity. General Maxwell Taylor had actually been appointed as the U.S. ambassador to South Vietnam in June 1964, so from the American embassy in Saigon, he requested authorization to tell an official Tonkin story in order to prevent the North Vietnamese from giving the Southern government a false version. Taylor was afraid that if the Americans did not react strongly to the North, the South would lose faith in American commitment. In Telegram 262, he suggested that communist boats be attacked in international waters and constantly surveyed by air, even if that required flights over northern territory. He also wanted to mine harbors and arm American ships with torpedoes. 
President Johnson wanted to downplay the situation, trying not to provoke it further. He did not want to punish North Vietnam for the incident. But the Maddox was sent back to the Tonkin Gulf and told them to retaliate against any attack, and the North Vietnamese were warned not to strike. The U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff mapped out potential targets and prepared to conduct airstrikes as well. The Maddox and another ship, the USS C. Turner Joy, were to perform maneuvers close to the northern coast, quote, asserting the right of American freedom to the international seas. Sounds like the South China Sea in Southeast Asia. On August 3rd, it appeared that northern boats wanted to attack the Americans again. The Sea Turner Joy fired its guns and the Maddox ran evasive maneuvers. But later on, it appeared that the so-called attack and perceived incoming torpedoes from northern Vietnamese ships were likely just a false sonar reading due to a storm. And air cover, which was provided, did not see any northern Vietnamese ships. Commander James Stockdale was an American pilot who flew low over the incident area, watching the American ships fire at ghosts. He said the following words about the incident. I had the best seat in the house to watch that event, and our destroyers were just shooting at phantom targets. There were no PT boats there. There was nothing there but black water and American firepower. Yet, signal intelligence came up with supposed North Vietnamese messages that reported North Vietnamese ships shot down two American planes and possibly damaged an American ship. So, there were two possible versions of this here. The pilot was saying, uh, Commander James Stockdale was saying there was nothing. The American ships were shooting at nothing. There were no PT boats, nothing there. And also, any perceived uh, torpedo uh, launches were were noise. And there was also talk of an inexperienced crew on the American ships as well. So this was a problem. Yet there was supposedly SIGINT, Signal Intelligence, saying that the North Vietnamese were there. So there was a lot of confusion about whether the communists really attacked. But President Johnson seemed to do an about-face from the first Tonkin incident. This time he was determined to retaliate before being positive there was an actual attack. He authorized the bombing of northern boat bases as well as an oil depot. Soon, the Americans had flown 64 sorties in retaliation. The Gulf of Tonkin incident has been much discussed, and I don't want to go too much into it here. It's a popular topic among conspiracy theorists who often call the incident a false flag used to justify increased intervention in Vietnam. The relevant documents and and records have been declassified, and they seem to show that even though the second attack on August 1st did not happen, it was used as part of the U.S. government's narrative to push forward with a more aggressive stance towards communist Vietnam. For more on the De Gulf of Tonkin uh, incident and the government's response to events there at the start of the American involvement, I can definitely recommend Lieutenant Commander Pat Patterson's essay on the subject at the U.S. Naval Institute's website. I'll post the link to this article in the show notes. Regardless of the lack of evidence for the second attack, Congress gave Johnson the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution on August 7, 1964. This gave the president virtually unlimited power in dealing with the deteriorating Vietnam situation. Increased military intervention was seen as the only way to fix the situation. The president allowed for retaliation if Americans were attacked, but in September he would not commit to a prolonged bombing campaign despite his August strikes. The North Vietnamese indeed did attack two American targets later that year. On November 1st, they struck Ben Hua Air, Air Base. On Christmas, they hit a billet in Saigon. Yet Johnson was still reluctant to go to war or intervene further, hoping to stabilize South Vietnam first. He was also in the midst of an election campaign and did not want to appear like his rash and more hawkish Republican opponent, Barry Goldwater. Withdrawal from Vietnam was considered... But then it was feared that if the South fell, all of Southeast Asia was next. Remember those dominoes! Force was the, quote, only option, but the path to victory was unclear. So, you have a situation here where Johnson wants to appear resolute against communism, but at the same time, there's this reluctance to get fully involved, um, partially to help the South. The South Vietnam, South Vietnam was, as I said, as we said, unstable. It was also a dictatorship of its own and everything. So there's this, there's this, well, not that the United States had trouble supporting dictators during, during the Cold War. Um, but the, uh, so there's this idea of trying to stabilize South Vietnam first. And so, you know, before intervening more in, in Vietnam. 
Full American involvement finally came in 1965. In February, the communists attacked American targets at Pleiku and Kuinon. The Americans retaliated with more airstrikes. Some argued for a, quote, sustained retaliatory reprisal, while others wanted preemptive graduated pressures, so-called, to make the war too costly for the northern communists. Johnson ultimately chose a policy of response to continued aggression, unquote. This made the escalated airstrikes appear like a proportional retaliation. Yet this retaliatory bombing campaign became relentless by March 15th, then escalating to between 10 and 12 strikes per week. But they were also ineffective, and the North would not buckle, frustrating President Johnson. I think this is certainly due to the nature of the war in Vietnam. The Northern Vietnamese were primarily a um, uh, using a guerrilla, the guerrillas, the Viet Cong, but also the Americans were trying to fight this war like they won World War II. Mass armies, mass attacks, mass bombing, everything. But this wasn't really working well against um, uh, a North Vietnamese fighting force that fought more like a guerrilla army. So, you know, the idea of fighting of counterinsurgency you know it's a different thing than sending in uh sending in tanks and mass bombings and everything so and that was throughout the whole the whole war that was what the americans struggled with and eventually it just didn't work but then we're jumping too far ahead american ground forces were landed at da nang on march 8th 1965 Thousands of American personnel had actually already been in Vietnam by this time, but this new batch was the first organized group of combat troops. The Da Nang force was meant to protect the airbase there. Deploying yet more troops was suggested, considering the airstrikes' poor results. And then, two more battalions were sent on April 1st. General Taylor, who had actually been appointed ambassador to South Vietnam in June 1964, insisted that these troops be used only for defense. But General William Westmoreland, the commander of the American forces, thought that the, quote, best defense is a good offense, and he wanted to kill the Northern Communists. President Johnson ended up agreeing with Westmoreland. On July 28, 1965, he said in a speech that he would fight communist aggression. America would stand in Vietnam. America was now at war, and it would be so until 1973. Now that the reasons for American involvement have been discussed, was Johnson justified in escalating the war? Politics definitely influenced his decision. To prevent the situation from becoming a 1964 election issue, Johnson wanted a, quote, legislative solution. If the president was given unlimited power to run the war, he would gain respect. And he could avoid Republican criticism for being soft on communism. He couldn't show weakness giving ammunition to the hawkish Republican candidate. Those hoping to negotiate a truce in Vietnam were viewed as neutralist hares. That's a constant problem as well. You know, you have hawks on one side, and then you have so-called doves on the other. So, and hawks will often accuse doves of being, oh, you're you're a useful idiot for the enemy side. You are, or for the adversary, and neutralist, and, and everything like this. So, they need to take a tough stance. Johnson was had this situation in his hands. The, and the Tonkin resolution gave Johnson the free hand he needed. But again, initially, he appeared indecisive, not wanting full-scale war. He wanted to focus as well on, in, in addition to wanting to stabilize Vietnam, he wanted to focus on domestic issues as well, such as civil rights and poverty. This reluctance to go to war gives him, you know, there's some justification, there's some credit there. And his airstrikes were also largely in response to North Vietnamese attacks on American troops after the Tonkin incident. He tried to pursue a limited war, just enough to make the North lose its stomach for fighting. But the North's, shall we say, stubbornness and ineffectiveness of the airstrikes eventually made Johnson believe that war was the only way forward. Despite the president's efforts at moderation, Vietnam still concerned him. He believed that fascism initially succeeded in World War II because of pacifist appeasers. He did not want the same thing to happen in Asia, turning the Pacific into a so-called Red Sea. So, Johnson bombed the North, gaining anti-communist favor. He did not jump fully into Vietnam right after his huge election victory over Goldwater in 1964. But in trying to look tough on communism, Johnson's decisions could be seen as somewhat political. 
Worse, at one point, he also had promised not to send troops to Vietnam. Yet during the election campaign, plans were made that eventually deployed U.S. troops to fight and die in Southeast Asia, far away from their U.S. homeland. Aside from politics, other factors made Johnson's escalation unwise. There were critics, including Ambassador Maxwell Taylor. Again, Maxwell Taylor was one who wrote in another memorandum that we should that the Americans should go into Vietnam. Then I think he was starting to see that there was a bit of a change here. He feared that the Americans might not do any better in a Vietnamese war than the French colonizers who were defeated in the 1950s. Others had concerns about inadequate planning. For example, whenever you're going to war, what's your result? You can't just go to war just because. You have to have a plan. What's the end victory? But And how much more would the Americans commit? This was another question. Was the rash escalation simply meant to save American reputation for an eventual retreat? The war had many possible complications, but it went ahead despite Krizik's reservations. And finally, again, we've mentioned this earlier, there was South Vietnam itself, the regime that America had tried to save from communism. In 1963, as I mentioned before, South Vietnam's Catholic government under Ngo Dinh Diem was oppressive. It jailed political opponents, restricted civil liberties, and forbade, quote, insubordinate Buddhists even from government. So forget communists. It wasn't struggling just against communists. It was struggling against Buddhists as well. The regime was also corrupt. And uh, a decade earlier, for example, in 1955, it had rigged a plebiscite to remove the Emperor Bao Dai. By 1961, the South was losing its war with the North, later prompting Diem to increase his oppression at home. And a coup ultimately killed him on November 1st, 1963. After Diem's demise, however, the South did no better. Coup followed coup until 1965. This made things very difficult for the frustrated Americans who could not sustain the South in this unstable political landscape. Factions were everywhere in South Vietnam. The generals, Buddhists, students, and Bao Dai all had their own political agendas. This discord not only forced the Americans to take a larger role in saving South Vietnam, but it could also make it harder for them to fight the communists as well. Ambassador Taylor's fears about the Americans having to shoulder the whole burden seemed credible. Eventually, after 50,000 dead personnel, the American military left Vietnam in 1973, though this was done under the Republican President Nixon, not under Johnson. South Vietnam ultimately fell to the communists in 1975. After looking at South Vietnam, Johnson's intensification of the war effort loses credibility. The South's instability and inability to fight the war on its own forced the Americans to commit more than it would need to otherwise. And the regime's corruption and oppressive puts a potential moral question on the American effort. Why did it fight communism by supporting such a oppressive country as South Vietnam? It must be remembered that as this, at this time, communism was seen as a grave threat that needed to be met with decisive action, even if that meant supporting the oppressive governments such as that in South Vietnam. The decision to go to war is never simple for a national leader. When a war starts, its consequences are never clear, and Vietnam was no exception. Johnson had shown poor judgment after the second Gulf of Tonkin attack. He did respond to the subsequent northern attacks, but in doing so, he supported a dictatorship in the South as well. Critics had some warnings about the dangers, but he ignored them, concerned about his reputation as an anti-communist leader. Johnson rejected diplomacy, condemning his country and fighting men to an eventually fruitless war. When we're looking at history, when we're looking at leaders today even, there has to be some sort of, can I say, benefit of the doubt or some kind of a grace, I I suppose you could say, because we don't always know what's going to happen. If we make a decision today, we don't know how that decision will affect us in our personal lives like years down the road. We don't know. Um, and, you know, when you're dealing with things such as war and containment of an uh, adversary and so on, you, you don't know exactly. What if, I, you know, you're thinking, what if I'm not tough enough on this? Will I, for in a democracy, will I lose <laughs> voter cred? Will I lose this, you know? This is, the, this is a situation. There are lots of questions that go on in this situation. But also, 
there's always a huge risk when you decide to, when a leader decides to escalate something. There's a huge risk. You know, if you escalate, is the country, is your adversary ever going to trust you again? Is your adversary ever going to trust you to, um, to meet your demands? Or if you decide to go to war, it's, it's war then. So are you, is that road to diplomacy ever, uh, is it closed forever? If you want to try and negotiate later, is that adversary going to trust you? You know, that's the thing. Eventually, the Americans did. Eventually, they did um, make peace with North Vietnam, and the Americans, as I said, eventually left in 1973. But again, that was under Richard Nixon, not under Johnson. So any of these long wars that America has has chosen to be involved in and chosen to be involved in, um, a lot of these wars have lasted for a very long time. And recently in August, the American forces pulled out of Afghanistan uh, in August 2021. And that was a war that was lasting for just about 20 years. So it's, um, and it went between different presidents, started with, George George W. Bush, and then it went to Obama, and then it went to Donald Trump, and then it went to the current president, Joe Biden. So these cho- choices to intervene are a very long-standing uh, issue. If we look at Russia and Ukraine as well, with the annexation of Crimea and uh, supporting um, supporting separatists in the in the Donbas region. That is an issue that is going to be there for, it's going to be in Russia's hands for a very, very long time. And so the decision will be how, you know, now we we see an escalation uh, with amassing of, of many Russian troops on on the border with, near the border with Ukraine. So far, as of December 16th, 2021, that is a movement within, within Russian territory. So, so, you know, that is what it is now. I mean, you know, there are Russian forces moving into Crimea as well. So that's a whole nother, <laughs> whole nother debate as well. But that's a whole nother, um, whole nother situation there. But from the Russian perspective, they are moving within Russian territory. So far, no invasion, nothing like that. I'm certainly no prophet and I'm certainly no uh, fortune teller. And, you know, I am always reluctant to do those things. So the talk about, I don't want to get so much into the heavy war talk, uh, war fears of war or anything like that, that you see a lot going around in media space and think tank space and so on that you're seeing now. But the the fact is that, again, this is another open, this Ukraine crisis of with uh, Crimea going to Russia and, and everything and this civil war in the, in the East, this war between separatists and... Um, pro-Russian uh, pro separatists and, and the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian government in Kiev. This is a long-standing situation. This is from 2014. So by intervening with, uh, with Russia taking, um, taking Crimea and, and supporting the rebels in, in the east, this, is, this brings up um, long-term questions. Like, how is this going to be resolved? This is already seven years, more than seven years, coming up to eight years now. And so the question to intervene is always very, very difficult. At the time, you can have pros and cons. I want to intervene. For Johnson, it was the idea of, I want to intervene in Vietnam for in retaliation to... North Vietnamese attacks, but also I want to look uh, strong against um, uh, communism, and and I'm afraid that uh, if I'm not tough on this, South Vietnam will fall to communism, and then therefore again the domino theory. Um, so yeah, okay, that's that's what's going on in that at that moment, and it depends on the information you have. We make choices based on the information that we have. Um, and for Russia's side in 2014, well, you know, there's this situation where, uh, with Crimea anyway, I think a very important point to remember is not only is Crimea a fairly heavily ethnically Russian area, but there's also a naval base in, in Crimea that Russia had legal access to. And then Euromaidan happened and, uh, the government changed and then it became much more pro-Western and... And so on. So, and after all of this um, talk within Russia, within the Russian government about fears of Western, um, Western-inspired or Western-backed uh, 
color revolutions in, in, in Russia's neighborhood and the expansion of NATO and so on, in the Russian calculus, this is, uh, this is a dangerous situation. And especially when uh, many NATO countries had launched regime change wars, uh, such as Iraq, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and, and Libya, and many of those situations ended up being fruitless and even making... Um, certainly, in my opinion, making the situation worse in many ways, the Russian calculus is, well, there's a naval base there that we have, we have legal access to. Suddenly now there's a uh, pro-Western uh, movement, the Euromaidan, the the government that was certainly more friendly to Russia, uh, is gone. So now we have this situation here. So then Crimea changed hands. So it's the decision to intervene always has those things, but now with the idea of Crimea, which has been called the largest land grab since World War II, you know that's a that's a situation where it's it's very difficult to. There will be consequences of some kind, and so now the Ukraine crisis and has been leading to Russia being, you know, the how is the West going to be able to. Uh, trust Russia and so on. So that that creates a whole nother issue. Uh, and with Johnson ultimately getting involved in Vietnam, um, you know, that led to a war that lasted for about a decade, 50,000 American soldiers dead. Uh, it led to mass protests at home and everything. So, and eventually America, America lost and had to withdraw from, from Vietnam altogether. So, the decision to intervene is always, always an interesting situation, and we have to be very careful. <laughs> Here I am talking like a, uh, like a dad, maybe, but, um, but you know, we have to be very careful about the decisions we make. And hindsight is twenty twenty, so we can look back at at Johnson and say, look, these were this 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 was the situation. This is very unwise. But at the same time, we can't cut cut leaders who choose to intervene and launch regime change wars or do whatever kind of intervention they want to do. We yes, we do need to look at the past, and they can't they can't tell the future any more than we can. But at the same time, we do need to wisely assess the information that we have now and say what could happen if you do this. This other thing could happen as well. You know, how motivated is North Vietnam, Vietnam to, to fight against us? How, how, do, how do they fight? Are our tactics going to be effective against them? And again, what's the goal? Is the goal to uh, stabilize um, a sort of a DMZ like there is uh, between North and South Korea to this day? Uh, is the goal to take North Vietnam and conquer it and destroy communism in Vietnam altogether? Uh, what's the objective here? And so, and as far as the war fighting went, you know, eventually it just became an idea of just attacking North, North Vietnamese troops in the Viet Cong and just going into kill count and trying to bleed them dry just by kill count. And, you know, many studies have talked about how that just, just didn't work. So these are always the things I think, I believe Johnson was, um, and the thing, the fact that he thought about it, the fact that he was reluctant to get involved, and then suddenly wanted to pursue a limited campaign, and then suddenly went full in with uh, with the Nang, that's that shows me as well that in my opinion, he was unwise to commit America to this war, and hindsight is twenty twenty, but I believe he was unwise to do so. But also fifty thousand American troops dead and causing and eventually the war was lost from the american perspective anyway so this was uh this was an unwise decision it i believe it caused a lot of unnecessary bloodshed and and the funny thing is even after the americans lost and withdrew and south vietnam fell in 1975 you didn't have this mass conversion to communism in southeast asia there were other communist countries, of course, the Khmer Rouge and Cambodia, but Indonesia didn't become communist. Philippines didn't become communist. Thailand didn't become communist. So the the nightmare scenario of those uh, terrible dominoes didn't happen.
So the whole prospect, the whole rationale of going to war in the first place ended up not happening. So, yeah, it's a hard decision. Somebody can come and say that Johnson, with the information that he had, he was wise to go into war. But from what I could tell, no, I don't believe so. And I think, you know, I woof, I felt like I was uh, becoming a, not just a, a podcaster and somebody talking about history, but also like, woof, be wise with your decisions, children. <laughs> becoming a bit like a dad here. But anyway, uh, I think that's wise advice anyway. And, uh, you know, I just want to sign out uh, for now. And uh, I believe Johnson was, was unwise to intervene in Vietnam. There you go. Time to stop. And uh, I wish you all well. And uh, with everything, with coronavirus and everything going around the world, uh, I always want to end my podcast on this note, that uh, please take care of yourselves and each other. Um, be, uh, be good to one another. Be healthy. And uh, stay at home as much as possible. But uh, if you do go out and work and everything, just, just be safe. Just be careful. But most importantly, more importantly than, than being careful, be kind to each other. And with that, we'll talk to you with you later. See you next time. So it's very important, actually. I'm going to take about 20 minutes to look into a memorandum sent from the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, to President Johnson in March 1964. So this memorandum was sent describing the overall situation in South Vietnam, America's current role there, uh, at the time and the support that they were giving to South Vietnam at the time, and also some possible courses of action. And so I'm going to go into that. It's going to be about 20 minutes, but it's very important, I think. It really shows some of the initial thinking about Vietnam, about South Vietnam, and what the Americans should do and should not do. Uh, and then something happens later on in 1964 that kind of changes it. So that incident was the Gulf of Tonkin incident in August 1960. So that was the Gulf of Tonkin incident later on in 1964, and that changes everything. And so this memorandum kind of get 